0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: It's
2: never too late to start adopting healthy habits. No matter what part you start from, the key is to start and that way you can improve. Aging is a process and deterioration in most cases can be slowed and in many cases can even be reversed.
3: Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how to live better as we age. We'll discuss which of the massage therapy or physiotherapy is right for you. We'll explore the best practices for planting fall bulbs. And lastly, we'll find out about non-meat charcuterie boards. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely Natural Liquid Greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products on the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine and this show. Welcome, sir. How are you?
2: I am doing wonderful and hopefully you can say the same.
3: I can. And you know why? Because today we're covering a topic that is near and dear to me. And this is part of my philosophy of health. And that is I think too many of us spend time worrying about how we're going to live longer, but we don't really consider how we're going to live better. Would you agree with that?
2: Unfortunately, I do agree with it.
3: So are we living better? I know we're living longer, but are we living better?
2: Well, there's no question we're living longer, because in the early 1900s, life expectation was the ripe old age of 49. Today, it sits at about 79, which is a massive improvement if you think about it only in 100 years. Wow. But here's the kicker. 73% of adults over 65 report having at least one chronic condition, and over 61% report having multiple chronic conditions.
3: When you say chronic conditions, let's sort of name what they are so people understand it a bit
2: better. Okay. Well, these are the big ones that everyone should or does fear. Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, arthritis, COPD, kidney disease, dementia, and depression.
3: Yep. I think that about covers it.
2: (laughs) Uh, So
3: in light of those existing chronic conditions, What are some of the risk factors that lead us to get those ailments?
2: Well, because these are complex conditions, like most complex conditions, in fact, almost all, there are a multitude of factors that play into the development of these conditions. You've got genetics, geography, lifestyle, and physical activity levels. Each one plays their own little part in this puzzle. And although you can't control all of them, particularly genetics, Your best defense is to lead as healthy a lifestyle as possible and control what you can.
3: Okay. So what do you think the key is to improve quality of life,
2: if that's true? Well, the big thing is we want to take care of the things that are highly correlated to these conditions. And that's a pretty short list of risk factors that do have that high correlation. You've got tobacco use and secondhand smoke poor nutrition habits, sedentary lifestyle, and alcohol use. And to many people, including myself, this just makes sense. If you're taking in either through your lungs in the case of smoke or through your mouth in the case of alcohol toxins, you're poisoning your body. If you have a poor diet, you're adding to the poisoning while at the same time not providing your body with vital nutrients that can help it clear the poisons. And being sedentary or just not moving at all, lets your muscles go to waste while keeping excess fat and sugar around to circulate and again, poison and damage your body.
3: Okay. So we know what the risks are. We know what the result is, and we know what we need to do. Let's talk about how we can actually execute so that we can improve the quality of our life moving forward. Okay? Definitely. Where do you want to start? You want to start with eating?
2: Sure. Sure. And a key thing to remember before we even go through all of these is that it's never too late to start adopting healthy habits. No matter what part you start from, the key is to start, and that way you can improve. Aging is a process, and deterioration in most cases can be slowed, and in many cases can even be reversed. So you said eating healthy. Food has been shown to be an important part of how we age. Dietary patterns cause changes in BMI and waist circumference, which are both risk factors for numerous diseases. And what researchers found is the typical meat and potato diet leads to greater increases in BMI. The white bread style diet leads to greater increases in waist circumference. The healthy balanced pattern has the smallest gains in both of those categories. And The additional thing to think about with our foods is that when you're having an unhealthy diet, it's correlated to low concentrations of vitamins, minerals, and micronutrients in your blood that, when they're there in higher levels, actually lead to disease reversal.
3: Okay. Everything you said, I agree with. But I want to add some caveats. So when sure. we when we talk about BMI and waist circumference, these are metrics that are generally used in order to inform people as to whether or not they're leading a healthy lifestyle, right? So, like, it's obvious if you are obese, your BMI is going to be much higher than it should be. And you know if you're obese. You just know it. You may not acknowledge it, but you know it. That Agreed. That being said... BMI is a bit tricky because, you know, there are different body types, ectomorph, mesomorph. So for a person like me, I'm, would, you know, the colloquial term is big boned, right? Like I, I, you know, I am bigger on average than other people and I carry my weight in certain places because I'm a mesomorph. Okay. So for me, BMI is an important metric, but it isn't the be all and end all. So I don't want people to over-focus on it. It's important. It provides relevant information, but it isn't conclusive as to whether or not you're healthy. You can oh, have... Of course not. You can be what's called... Uh, I wouldn't call it fat fit, but you can carry extra weight and still be very fit and healthy. It kind of depends on your body type. Sorry.
2: Agreed. I've been large my whole life, but I'm still considered healthy.
3: Yeah, exactly. As am I, right? I mean, like I know for a fact... I'm fit and strong for my age, but I also know I carry more weight than most people. And that's Mm -hmm. just the way it is. Agreed. All right. So after eating, what would be step two?
2: Step two would be to avoid the poisons. Okay. And this is a really quick one. You want to avoid smoke of any kind, processed foods, artificial foods, artificial colors, artificial flavors, and alcohol. All of these are poisons. And I'm not saying go 100% cold turkey because going cold turkey with anything to do with food or habits just leads to failure. And, And what I'm trying to say is be reasonable. What you want to do is just every time you put something in you, it's a decision. It's a choice between A, B, C, or D. And if more times than not you choose the healthier of those four, you're doing better. And that's all
3: anyone can ask. You know, some people ascribe to the 80-20 theory, right? So if 80% of the time you're doing what's right, but 20% maybe not, you're probably okay. And, and I agree with that. And sustainability, I think, is what you're talking about, right? Like if you are depriving yourself and that in and of itself makes you unhappy, there's no way you're going to be able to sustain it because that's just not the way we're wired. So whatever it is, whatever decisions you're making, has to you have to be able to execute it for the rest of your life because it isn't a one-shot deal. You, you, don't just, Agreed. you don't just cut out the toxins for a month and expect a sea change. That's not the way it so, works.
2: It's a long-term race. It doesn't matter if you're sprinting and doing great. It matters that you get to the finish line. Great.
3: Okay. What's next?
2: Next one is to get physical. Yep. <laughs> Ooh, I led into that one myself. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how you cut it, physical activity is good for you. Exercise, physical activity, whatever you want to call it, is considered to be one of the foundations of almost every health plan and healthy aging program. People who exercise regularly not only live longer, they live better and being physically active, doing everyday little activities even that keep your body moving such as gardening, dancing, walking the dog, taking the stairs instead of an elevator, can help you continue to live the way you want on your terms, doing the things you want and staying independent as you age. It reduces your risk of tons of diseases and disabilities that occur with aging. And you may do things you may not even think of. For example, balance exercise help prevent falls, which is a major cause of disability in people. Strength exercises build bones and muscles, reducing your risk of osteoporosis. And flexibility exercises help keep your body and joints limber, giving you range of motion.
3: And I would add very quickly, that the biggest health benefit is when you go from zero to doing something, anything. doesn't have to be weightlifting, doesn't have to be cycling, doesn't have to be basketball or football. Just getting off the couch and going for a walk will improve your life exponentially.
2: Yes. And one thing a lot of people also forget is it also improves your mood.
3: 100%. Let's move on to the next item before we get to supplements. What's that?
2: Sure. That is participation. And here's where the psyche comes in. Do what you love researchers found that people who are involved in hobbies and social and leisure activities are at significantly lower risk for some health problems. They found that activities like reading, playing board games, playing musical instruments, dancing, all of them lower your risk for dementia and they found that people who did these live longer than people who did didn't report taking part in these activities.
3: And that makes sense because if you're engaging your mind, it's going to improve your mood. It'll help you sleep. It'll help you cope perhaps with not eating everything that you want to do. You just can't be passive. The one thing you can't do is sit around and watch TV. Even even reading is better than TV. So there you go. All right. So let's move on to supplementation because, you know, this is your area of expertise as well. What are some of the things that we can do to help with some of the ailments that people might be suffering from?
2: Definitely. There are some things. First is the realization that everyone's diet, no matter how good your diet is, can use a boost. For example, there are a few vitamins that are essential to good health and are missing or virtually missing from everyone's diet. One of them is vitamin B12, which is important for energy and endurance. Then you have the two vitamins that work really well together, vitamin K2 and vitamin D, that are both essential for disease prevention and immune health. So you've got vitamins on one side. The next pillar is protein, Mm -hmm. because as we age, our intake and our ability to absorb protein diminishes. Protein is important to keep up our muscle strength and tone, which contributes to balance, energy and endurance. In this one, I recommend picking a high quality protein isolate, specifically an isolate with minimal added ingredients and ensure all the ingredients are natural. And the reason I do that is if you take an isolate, you're getting a high amount of protein in a small serving. If you take one with few additives, then you're also not taking these massive scoops because the bigger the scoop required, the less likely you are to take it.
3: Good advice. And for people who don't realize that protein is also important for your brain function as well. Yep. So it, you aren't just building muscle, which is obviously important because it protects your joints, your ability, your cognition will improve if you maintain your protein intake as well. Definitely. What's next?
2: Next one is the third pillar, which is fiber. You want to take care of your gut. All health starts within your gut, because if you can't digest properly, you can't actually get the nutrients from your food. Right. What I suggest doing here is two supplements. First, a high-quality soluble fiber, and secondly, a potent organic prebiotic and probiotic combination capsule. Taking both of these together, you'll start tuning your digestive system, start working at its optimal level. And the last thing is to take care of your joints. And for anyone who hasn't yet experienced joint pain, congratulations. For the other 99% of the people listening, (laughs) you understand that almost everyone has some degree of joint issues as they age. Inflammation and pain are the norm for almost everyone. I suggest taking an organic turmeric capsule daily. Myself, I take two grams, so it's four capsules. I split them every day as a preventative. And as an added bonus, turmeric also helps digestion and it's an antioxidant.
3: Okay. Are there any other supplements that help with joint health that you could recommend?
2: There are some other ones. One other one I'm really fond of is eggshell membrane. There's about four or five different brands out there. And the nice thing about eggshell membrane is what it does in a very small dose, essentially one capsule a day, is it actually starts building up your joints from the inside out.
3: Okay. We have time for one last question. And I want to just circle back quickly to gut health. Do you recommend any enzymes to help with digestion?
2: I recommend enzymes if people have enzyme issues, and the reason you would know if you have enzyme issues is when you're eating, if you have pain or excess gas during or immediately following. Okay. And there's multiple products out there that are broad range vegan enzyme digestive blends they're all fairly good, but find one that works for you. If you take one and it doesn't work, don't give up on enzymes. Just switch to a different brand until you find the one that works for you.
3: Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: As always, my pleasure, sir.
3: That was Joel Thuna. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss whether massage therapy or physiotherapy is right for you on The Tonic. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. HealthCasa is a mobile healthcare service that brings the clinic to you. Imagine convenient appointments in the safety and comfort of your own home for massage, physiotherapy, chiropody, orthotics, ergonomic assessments, and occupational therapy. Their services are covered by most insurance plans, and their team of highly trained and vetted healthcare practitioners bring everything they need. So all you have to do is answer the door. No more wasting time in traffic or gross waiting rooms. HealthCasa brings the clinic to you. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit healthcasa.com.
4: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
3: Having started a small chain of foot clinics and an orthotic manufacturer in the GTA in 2010 and selling them in 2014, Mike Gaspar became acutely aware of the key to rapid growth, providing an extraordinary patient experience. In 2017, along with his partner, Karen, he founded Health Casa with the goal of providing safe and convenient access to high quality health care to patients in their homes by going back to the roots of how we used to get our health care, the house call. Mike's aspirations for HealthCasa are twofold, to provide a great patient experience and to provide a great practitioner experience while making the process as easy as possible for everyone involved. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. So we all know what a massage is, right?
5: We've either had one or we've seen one. But how does that differ from massage therapy? So it's sort of a more official version of a massage. I mean, you have someone who's trained and registered and they work on your muscles, ligaments, tendons to make sure that they work out all the kinks, not just leave you relaxed, although that is also a benefit. Right.
3: And a a registered massage therapist is exactly that they are registered, which Correct. means there's a college of massage therapy, and that's that's actually relatively new within the last decade,
5: right? It's a good question. I don't know exactly when the uh, College of Massage Therapists of Ontario was formed, but that is a critically important point, is that they are registered and regulated by that college.
3: Right. So, it's different than going to, quote-unquote, a massage
5: parlor and... Massage therapists do not like being called masseuses, right? No, that is, uh, if that's your, your one takeaway here, it's don't call your RMT a masseuse or a masseur. That's how you get an elbow like in, <laughs> into your lower back, right? You call them a
3: masseuse, you, you may not be able to walk out, right? Maybe a flying elbow. <laughs> <laughs>
5: so what's the difference between that and physiotherapy? So physiotherapy is, you know, they study the science of movement. So they're going to get down to the nitty gritty of what... The root causes of your particular pain you know is it you know an irritated and inflamed ligament or tendon is it a locked up muscle because of an injury or an overuse and in- like an acute in- injury like you've fallen down or got hit by something or you know an overuse injury like you know sitting at your desk for 15 months in the wrong position you know and they work from the cause outward Right. So in contrast to a massage therapist, a massage therapist is going
3: to help you with the pain, right? They understand how to get to the muscle pain that you're experiencing and help you relieve it. Whereas a physiotherapist is going to help get to the root cause and help you, you know, it's curative. It'll make you better,
5: right? Right. And they're not mutually exclusive. That's an important thing. You know, people often ask, do I have to go to a massage therapist or a physiotherapist? The answer is often both. You know, let's go see a physiotherapist first and figure out the root cause figure out what needs to be worked on and then maybe in between your physiotherapy appointments you're going to see a massage therapist who can help relax those muscles and help those physio treatments be more effective. Okay. What sort of things do people have like what sort of ailments do
3: they have that might edify why they might go to a a massage therapist as opposed to a physiotherapist
5: or vice versa? So great question. It's something that's very hard to answer. It's very personalized. So anything, you know, that hurts, it could be, again, you know, like I said before, a specific injury, like, you know, you were playing softball on the weekend and you got, you know, you swung too hard and missed and you just wrenched your back or pulled an oblique muscle or messed up your shoulder. Or, again, like we've all been doing, sitting in front of a screen for 15, 16 months, whatever it is now, in the wrong position, you know, with with stuff not set up correctly... So it's very personalized, but that's the beauty about physiotherapy is that you can figure out with them or they can help you figure out what the root cause is. So where is this pain in your body and what has caused that pain? And then how do we reverse that and set you up to not only address that pain that you're dealing with right now, but also preventing it in the future?
3: Right. My experience is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, like a lot of former student athletes go into physiotherapy and they have a pretty good understanding of the types of injuries that can occur to people because they've all had them themselves, right? It's like, it's a pretty good reason why they got into it. So for example, I had an Achilles, uh, it wasn't a tear, but it was a a pretty serious Achilles problem. My
5: physiotherapist was actually a former college athlete who knew exactly how to help me with it because he had suffered from himself. And if I had to guess, uh, they probably went into uh, kinesiology after that. Correct, right. Yeah, so that's very common. But, and that's, you know, basically studying the anatomy and, you know, how your body moves. I mean, we're not static by any stretch and we're certainly not uh, you know balanced we're not perfect beings in fact you know most people are asymmetrical in a number of ways you know from one foot being bigger than the other or a leg being longer than the other only by a couple of millimeters but you'd, you'd be surprised at how much a couple millimeter difference really changes the biomechanics of your body right
3: all my ankle problems are in my left ankle as opposed to my right right and i know
5: i know it's because i'm left
3: dominant i'm a lefty and i know how my stride is and it's just a function of that right like i don't run anymore because mm. of it and some things can't be fixed and you know massage therapists for example can help you if you've got chronic pain that isn't going away for example that's a good reason to go see a massage therapist because they are really
5: experts at helping you deal with the pain right well, again, I, I think they'll help you feel better right then and there. Right, exactly. And then if they're a good massage therapist and they take the time like we do to educate the patients, which, and I'll say this, this should be done by every healthcare professional, you know, and it's just my opinion is so take it or leave it, but helping you get better is one thing. Teaching you how you got there and how to get better on your own is really what takes it to the next level. So, you know... Having the massage therapist say, okay, well, this is tight and I've seen you for X number of weeks and it's tight, but it keeps getting tight. There's something causing that tightness. You need to dive deeper let's refer you to, to physiotherapist. Right. And a physiotherapist <laughs> isn't just manipulating your body, right? They, they may suggest some stretches and exercises that you can do, right? Like they do all sorts of stuff. So you can have someone, you know, like yourself, you know, we'll call each other young guys. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome back to the show. Anytime. There Mike. we go. <laughs> you know, weekend warriors going out yeah. for a jog, walking your dog, playing, you know, shinny with your buddies, you know, playing golf, whatever the case may be. And you know, getting hurt and dealing with that. But then you have physiotherapists who can also help with, you know, your elderly relatives who we had someone that we saw. And obviously I can't name names for privacy reasons, but you had an elderly woman in her early eighties who unfortunately fell down. Mm-hmm. She broke her ankle and dislocated her knee, like mm-hmm. kneecap right to the side, yep. bad shape. So our physiotherapist helped her get back up to not only just walking around the house but doing everything she wanted to do and she was uh, and enjoyed doing so there's something called activities of daily living which is you know exactly what it sounds like you know living your life but doing things like going for a jog going for a bike ride with her husband so obviously a very able-bodied you know early 80s yeah and she she, at the beginning of of the process thought I'm not gonna be able to do this anymore that's, really, concerning. It's That's concerning. It's a- concerning and it really messes with you. You know, my life is now going to be totally different than it was before this injury. Right. And the physiotherapist worked with her to get her back up to doing everything. That she, she she doesn't see us anymore. She's, you know, graduated from health casa. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Did she get a diploma? Yeah, I should, I should mail her one. What if you don't, don't know, know. <laughs> whether you should be seeing a massage therapist or a physiotherapist? Like, how do you deal with that? So... The short answer is communication. I mean, communication, in my opinion, is the most important part of any sort of relationship, be it personal, professional, etc. So you have an injury, you don't know what to do, you see a Health HealthCasa ad, you say, well, I don't know, I want to book a massage, and then you get on the phone with someone like us, which sadly is kind of a, r- a rarity these days, you know, yeah. just fill out this web form and book your appointment and boom, we'll send whoever you ask. But if you don't know... You want to be able to call someone. And yes, it's more efficient from a business to have someone book on their own. But to have someone there, you know, to answer all your questions and help you understand not only what's going on, but what your options are, that's important. So the short answer is ask questions. And if someone is there willing to answer that's the place you're going to go. Yeah, that triage is so important.
3: uh, Be Critically important. Because it helps the practitioner too to understand what it is they should be preparing for,
5: what your expectations are, you know, what your needs are. It's helpful for everybody, really. Right. So very interesting point you brought up about helping the practitioner is that, you know, one thing when I owned my clinics, I didn't like when... I saw my practitioners go up to the treatment room where their next patient's waiting. They pick up the patient's chart on the, you know, outside the door, one of those plastic file holders and say, hi, look at the chart, John, nice to see you. I hear, you know, what do you hear about? So they're going in totally blind. This way you have the patient fill out their patient intake form. The practitioner can review that before and you have a more efficient, you know, process. Okay, so we have time for one more question, and that is, you know,
3: so many of us have been stuck at home, whether you're working at home or whatever, and I know for a fact, like, you know, I'm sitting slouched over here, like mocking my posture, but I'm in front of the computer the whole day, and there's all sorts of back and neck pain issues. Can a physiotherapist or massage therapist help with that, and and how does it function with your business?
5: So, I would say Definitely a physiotherapist can help. I mean, again, a massage therapist can help with some of the pain, but a physiotherapist can also perform what's called an ergonomic assessment. So, you know, you have neck pain or shoulder pain or whatever it is. Let's take a look and see... You know, what's going on how's your monitor set up is it too far is it too close too high too low are you using an external keyboard are you hacking away on your laptop and you know stretching over or he, are you sitting on the couch you know where are you sitting how are you sitting where are your peripheral devices set up how many monitors are you using there's a million different combos and people don't think of these things like i just need to get it done and you know something as simple as a footrest or you know an empty amazon box you can use as a footrest which i guarantee 99% of people listening have one of those at home right now you know That can take strain off your back. That's really important. And that works the same way as any other appointment, you know. I'm working a lot at my home office. I am probably not sitting properly and I'm in pain. So let's call Health Casa, and I'll get someone to help me work out. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Great to chat about this. What would you like to talk about next time you're in? I think we should talk about people's feet, chiropathy, orthotics, all things foot care. Sounds fantastic. That was Mike Gaspar. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right
3: back on The Tonic. Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover De-Stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label.
0: Does the fear of losing control keep you awake at night? Enjoy better sleep on something you can control. The Supreme Adjustable Bed by Ultramatic. Customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar positions with push-button control for relief of back pain, arthritis, and sleep apnea. The Supreme. Take back control of your life.
3: Try Ultramatic's Supreme Adjustable Bed for 100 nights, risk-free. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep.
0: This is The Tonic. On Zoomer
3: Radio. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed. She's passionate about the connection between human health and nature and believes that regenerative gardens can help us create food security and broaden ecological diversity. Melissa has been featured on Farmer's Footprint in Toronto Life and has been a guest speaker at Allen Gardens. She's also been a well-received garden expert online and in person. And for more information, you can always visit thegoodseedto.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
4: I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jamie. How are you?
3: Good. So, you know, we're now into fall and, you know, most people think Gardens, you know, most of the work comes in spring and summer, and not much to do in fall, but there are some things that we can do, right?
4: Totally. Fall is a great time to be in the garden.
3: And I know there are some plants that come back every year, and you deal with them in fall, and that's bulb plants like tulips, for example, right?
4: That's right. So there's a whole sort of genus of plants that require a cooling down before they bloom and bulbs are one of them. So as such, instead of planting them in the spring, we actually need to plant them in the fall so that they can sort of hibernate in the soil over the winter and then wake up in the spring and give us. Beautiful, large, luscious blooms.
5: Which
3: plants are those which are the bulbs that we plant in fall? Like obviously tulips, you know, everybody knows that tulips are bad (laughs) plants, but but what else are there?
4: So tulips, it's a great place to start. And then there are daffodils. Mm -hmm. And now daffodils are sometimes called narcissists, but let's call them daffodils today. Okay. Simplification. But if you do see narcissists, you know, it's the same idea. Mm -hmm. There are hyacinths. And hyacinths are broken down into sort of two different categories. The regular large hyacinth and then grape hyacinth, which Mm -hmm. is also called muscari. Mm -hmm. And lastly, what's also great to plant in the fall are ornamental alliums. And so alliums, meaning related to the onion and garlic family, but in their ornamental form, they grow these big, large, beautiful sort of globe blooms.
3: I've seen those where it's like a single stalk and then it sort of bursts into a bloom at the top. Is that, is that what you're talking about?
4: That's right. It's almost like a hundred different little flowers bursting in a spherical form. And usually they're purple, sometimes pink, sometimes mm. white, and they come in a whole range of sizes.
3: Cool. All right. And these plants tend to bloom in the spring as opposed to the summer,
0: right?
4: That's right. These are some of the first signs of your garden you're going to see. And it's so fun and rewarding to see them, right? Like we're so used to the gray March weather that, you know, tries our every last bit of patience. And we're aching to get out in the garden. We're aching to see blooms and spring bulbs that are planted in the fall. It's just, that's the number one way to kind of wake up your garden and impress your neighbors.
3: I thought crocuses were on that list too, but you didn't mention them. Are crocuses a bulb plant?
4: You're right, they are. They are also on that list. I haven't mentioned them. They're a little bit smaller. So there's a couple of other ones that we didn't talk about. I'm focusing on sort of the larger impact ones uh, we chat today.
3: Gotcha, okay.
4: There's snowdrops. there's a few.
3: So what do I need to do in fall to prepare for bulbs?
4: Great question. So do you prepare for your fall, planting of your bulbs, we're going to want to amend our soil a little bit. So as we're digging in our bulbs, we're going to want to add some really good compost and just give some nutrition to the soil. And the other product that I really like is hen manure. Sorry, repeat that? Hen manure. So really chicken poop. Yeah. And if you go to the garden center, you're going to see it. They sell it in what looks like milk cartons. Okay. And It's got a bit of an odor, but it's a great sort of fertilizer that's natural that you can add into your planting hole as you decide to plant your bulbs and gives you a really great show of color and production in the spring.
3: So I can attest that chicken poop is a fantastic fertilizer because we had chickens in our backyard, I think I told you a few shows ago, and yeah. they love to poop in my raised gardens, which is great. They also love to eat everything in my raised gardens, so not so good. So it's a little <laughs> bit of trade-off, but if I can get the poop without the chickens, that may be the perfect solution. So I can attest to the fact that that is some fantastic fertilizer, 100%. It is.
4: And when you buy it from the garden center, it's actually sort of in a pelleted form, which is okay. much nicer than what the chickens do in the
3: backyard. Yeah, that's true. Nothing more needs to be said on that point. So <laughs> okay, moving, on. <laughs> moving on. So let's talk about spacing, right? Because what a lot of people do is they either plant stuff too close together or not far enough apart or, or whatever. Like you really need to conceptualize where your garden is going. What are your recommendations for how far apart these bulbs should be?
4: Okay, so I have a pretty strong opinion on this. When you buy your tulip or narcissist, whatever, your packages of bulbs, they have a recommendation on the back of it. Mm -hmm. And that recommendation is usually to plant them quite far apart from each other. Mm -hmm. Now, that makes for a very wonky-looking garden, in my opinion. Okay. So I want you to plant in clumps and clusters. I think it makes for a beautiful show, and it allows the eye to sort of really take in multiple blooms at once. I prefer uneven numbers. That's just a design quirk. 100%. Um, But, so I'm talking about, you know, like, let's put a minimum of seven bulbs at a time in one spot. So when you're planting in clumps or clusters like that, I want you to think about digging more of, like, a circular trench Mm -hmm. rather than a hole, right? Because we want each of those bulbs to sit nicely next to each other, snug, but not on top of each other.
3: So a couple of inches apart?
4: No, like a touching
3: Oh, Oh, that close together. Okay.
4: that close. That's going to give you that really kind of impactful clump of blooms. And then for colorways, there are two ways of making an impact. There's sort of the every crayon in the crayon box idea where you just go crazy for colors and textures and sizes and shapes. Or you can keep it really monochromatic and simple. And that can also be super impactful.
3: So we traveled to Amsterdam where, you know, the tulip is Mm. both King and Queen and their King's day festival. We went to the tulip gardens just outside of Amsterdam and it's quite incredible. Yeah. It's quite incredible what they do there, but I'm kind of like a monochrome dude. Like I kind of like it when you have the bursts of color, but like together as opposed to like mixing them all up in one spot, it just kind of looks weary nary. I don't know. That's my personal taste. And in the garden, like when you see it, Done properly, like properly cultivated and, and spaced and everything, it, it really is spectacular.
4: It is. One of the like key differences between seeing tulips at a botanical garden versus what you're doing at home is to consider the other plants that you actually might have in your garden. Right. So when you are in these beautiful botanical gardens, even places like Castelloma, things like that, they have huge swaths of land that they can sort of space the tulips or the daffodils or the hyacinths in are a little comfier spacing and they just have large volume over large space at home you may have other plants that are quite near to where you're planting your fall bulbs Mm -hmm. and so clumping them can make sense yep how do we keep
3: the squirrels from getting at the bulbs because that's an issue
4: that's a great question So in general, the squirrels are not going to bother your daffodils or your hyacinth. And that's because they release a substance called oxalic acid. And that's an irritant and poisonous and they don't love it. But they do love, love, love the tulips. So I think we've talked about this before, but your best defense is a good offense. And for me, that means creating a physical barrier. one of the most important things you can have in your toolkit as a gardener is chicken wire. It's so versatile. It's so easy to have around. And so every time you plant tulips, I want you to use chicken wire. And not on the surface of the soil, but actually in that larger hole or trench that you're planting in. So you're going to dig out your trench. You're going to add your compost, your manure, your hen manure, your fertilizer, whatever you're putting in the bottom there. You're going to plant your bulbs. For your tulips, pointy side up, and then you're going to take a diameter of chicken wire that is equal to the diameter of your hole and you're going to place it on top of those bulbs. Backfill the hole and you're done.
3: And the stalks of the plants can grow through the chicken wire? Like, do you need a certain. Okay, but is there a certain width of hole in the chicken wire that you would recommend? Or is chicken wire just chicken chicken
4: wire? Yeah, I mean, standard chicken wire gauge is fine. You wouldn't want to use something like concrete mesh, which is got sort of much tinier grid holes. But they grow fine. You won't know. No one will know. Okay, You won't know, but the squirrels will know. Okay,
3: Which varieties would you recommend for planting in Toronto?
4: That's a great question. So let's break it down with, let's start with tulips, because that's where we just were. Mm -hmm. There are two kinds of tulips I feel that are very impactful. One are the parrot tulip varieties. Mm -hmm. Those have those gorgeous scalloped edges, usually colors that sort of Bleed a little bit, green to white, orange to peach. Those are super lovely. And then the other kind are double tulips. And double tulips are, as their name suggests, double the petals in a single stem. And so they almost look like a peony. They're super lush. They're beautiful in the garden. They're beautiful as a cut flower. Okay. For narcissists, or a daffodil, there are a ton of varieties out there, and you really don't need to stick to that traditional butter yellow flower. Mm-hmm. You can look at white varieties, uh, you can look at beautiful peaches and light pinks. So, Replete is one that I really like. Another one is called Petit Four. And often, you know, if you're buying from a more specialty location, you has a choice between you know like 20 or 30 varieties so that's pretty neat Mm -hmm. we talked about alliums and those are very cool there's one called star of persia and it's got like just it's it's a really nice large bloom and again those do look pretty odd if you just plant one so make sure you're planting a couple of them
3: fantastic advice thank you so much for coming on the show today
4: thanks so much happy gardening
3: That was Melissa Cameron. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily building community is at the core of their vision which they deliver through education outreach and giving they want everyone to share in the goodness they offer visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. hi i'm jamie Buss, and i'm not only the host of the tonic talk show and podcast i'm also the publisher of tonic magazine tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the globe and mail to each and every home subscriber in toronto west of victoria park And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine.
4: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
3: Carolyn Tanner-Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can visit deliciousdish.ca. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
1: Hi, Jamie. Great. How are you?
3: I am doing well. It's fall, and I love eating in fall. We're going to talk about something I know that you love, which is a food trend, which is charcuterie boards or boards, actually, right?
1: Yeah. It's more boards that I love than charcuterie.
3: (laughs) But traditionally, they were charcuterie boards, right?
1: Yeah, You know what charcuterie means? Like the word charcuterie? No. I just did a little research. I didn't know this myself. It means cooked flesh, or actually it means flesh cooked. Okay. So that actually turns me off a little bit from the word charcuterie. Well, it turns some people off, not really me. And I am definitely one of these girls that loves a good charcuterie, Mm -hmm. but I do try to avoid eating a lot of nitrates and a lot of processed meats. So when I make a charcuterie board, and some people don't eat it at all, so I like to make an alternative charcuterie board that is meat-free. Okay. So some people have a hard time with that, or some people don't even want to put meat and cheeses on the same board. So the topic today is really about a meat-free charcuterie board, not so much a vegetarian charcuterie board, but meat-free, okay? Got it. And the other way we could start thinking of charcuterie boards are, like, think of it like a healthy snacking board, or not necessarily healthy, but a snacking board, or a sharing board. So now that, you know, we're sharing a little bit more right now, it's a great way to serve with guests. Okay.
3: Yeah. For the people that are reluctant to sort of share, you can make mini boards oh, for, yeah. cu- for couples or individuals, right? It's yes. just it's just a different way of presenting food and eating, really.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a wood board. Like I've seen mini slate boards. Mm-hmm. And it's a really beautiful way. So like you could sort of make like a hero board and everybody could have their own little slate plates and you could serve even using tongs. Yep. Everybody gets their own set of tongs, like mini tongs. That's a nice way to do things actually. Okay. So how do you build the perfect charcuterie board when meat is not your thing or even if it is, but we're not going to talk about the meat today. So you want to stick to a formula. okay? Mm-hmm. And when you have a plan, you'll be successful. So. I'm not a big fan of overloading things, so I don't like those charcuterie boards that are overloaded and busy and crammed and have crackers everywhere and food and there's no gaps. My motto is embrace the space, okay? I think food looks much more inviting when it's less busy or overloaded. So build a framework for your board. Color, flavor balance, and an assortment, but not too many, of textures. So less is more and just have more of each thing, okay? Mm -hmm. So you want to think of how people eat. Think of that you need layers. So you need a base like crackers or baguette, pita, or even a hearty chip, or even a vegetable. And then you want to add a spread or two like hummus or tahini, jams, vegetarian or fish pates. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then think of toppings like a smoked fish, cheeses, fruit slices such as figs, melons, apricots. And then you could add a few dips or drizzles like olive oils, balsamic vinegars, some additions to olive oils like a dukkah spice blend, which is like a North African spice blend that has nuts and cardamom and coriander and a few other ingredients. Very delicious. You could add a chimichurri, which is like an herb paste almost, or even honey as a topping. Sure. So far, I'm okay.
3: So far, you're good. So is that where you start? If you're conceptualizing a board, like how do you plan it out? Like in terms of portions and what goes where and everything?
1: Yeah. So I first, I think about like my theme, So do I want this to be like Middle Eastern-y, or do I want it to be Spanish, or do I want it to just be Mediterranean, which is sort of a very easy way to go? Mm -hmm. I I find Mediterranean pretty easy, and then you could throw a few sort of Middle Eastern things or North African things in there, like dukkah, and chimichurri really could go on any plate, because it just depends on which herbs you use, to which culture it shines to, Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I like to fill in the gaps, but not too much, okay, so still embrace the space. And that's when you're going to throw in some smaller fruit clusters. Most people use grapes, but I like to use cherries, or blackberries are really nice, or some dried fruits and nuts, okay, or without nuts if you want to keep it nut-free. Now, plan seasonally, okay? So we all know, like, the baked brie. You're not going to be using baked brie in the summer, spring, summer, and fall. Maybe towards the end of fall, but if you're thinking about, save it for the winter and bring it out like November or later, okay? Mm-hmm. But in the summer, you want to highlight fresh fruit by grilling it. If you want to throw in some sort of a cheese, you could consider using a mascarpone as one of your cheeses or spreads, and you top that with a really good artisanal honey or a very interesting balsamic vinegar.
3: Okay. You could also make something like burrata, the centerpiece, if you can oh, contain... Yes. If you that can was contain my the... next thing. Oh, okay. Sorry, I stole
0: your yes, thunder. Yeah, no,
1: I'm happy you brought that up because my next highlight was like, let's get creative,
0: Okay? Sure. Right? yeah.
1: But when you're thinking burrata, think, you know, I don't need to put something super messy on a plate yeah. because it's just going to spill over. Correct. Okay, so you can add small bowls to your board. So you put a small bowl, put a ball of burrata, splay it open, Drizzle a burrata, for those of you who don't remember from last month or wasn't listening, it's a fresh mozzarella, and in the center of it, it has cream or a milk in it, and it's delicious, very mild, needs salt, so splay it open, sprinkle some good flake sea salt in there, nice olive oil, a fruity olive oil, good amount of pepper. And maybe even a drizzle of balsamic, and then around the bowl of burrata, you might have baguette slices with a small knife. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing you could do, and would you put the burrata in the bowl, Jamie?
3: Yeah, you can't just leave it on the board. Okay. Anything that's going to make a mess, whether it's right. whether it's dips or spreads, they're going to have to be contained. Be- exactly. Because not every, you know, you're some people love to mix things up, but other people like to have exactly the stuff on the board individually. So
1: yeah. And you could get creative. I mean, think of like a, a beautiful tomato bocconcini caprese salad layered with basil, and you could fan that out on a board, sure. or you could chop it up smaller and make it almost like a bruschetta mix in mm. there in a bowl, and serve it with some toasted baguette or fresh baguette on the sides. Mm-hmm. Go fishing.
3: Okay, what <laughs> think do you of mean? That. What do you mean by that?
1: So I love buying a small tuna loin, like a small amount. You probably don't need more than four ounces on a board, or four to six ounces perfectly grill it, so what I like to do is I season the outside of the tuna with some oil and sprinkle it maybe even with some sesame seeds and sea salt and pepper. Grill it on two to four sides, depending on the shape of the tuna, anywhere between thirty seconds a side. If there's four sides, if there's two sides, it's a minute per side on very high heat. It's still raw in the middle. You could do it well in advance because it could be cold, taste serve cold. Slice it thinly, like about a half an inch, a quarter to half an inch thin, and fan it out in place of a traditional cured meat. So it might look like a salami fanned out but it's a sliced tuna. And then right beside it, you serve like a nice chimichurri or like even a store-bought pesto without cheese. Like you could buy pesto that has no cheese in it because that would go really nicely and some thinly sliced baguette crostini.
3: Yep. You could also go and either get some hot smoked or cold smoked fish, which goes nicely on crackers or breads or pitas as well if you wanted to go the seafood way,
1: right? For sure. So what do you like in terms of your smoked fish?
3: It depends. Schmaltz Appetizing has this really interesting beet-cured salmon, mm, which I quite like. That. They also have a pastrami-spiced salmon and then the traditional. I also, I don't mind uh, smoked trout if it's done properly because you, yeah. you can also puree that into a spread. Uh, yeah. So those are options. You can even cook some shrimp and have like For a sure. shrimp cocktail as the sort of the focal point of the board. Yeah, you
1: know. and you could buy the shrimp cooked.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Which makes
1: it really, really easy. The other thing that I love is I do make my own gravlax, but you, which is a very easy thing. And you could go on my website and get the recipe for beet gravlax. Mm-hmm. What I like to do is I like to chop up the gravlax rather than slicing it and mix a little Dijon mustard into it mm-hmm. with some chives, a little bit of red onion, salt and pepper. Not heavily salt because it's already pretty salty. And you make like a tartare. Yep. So it's not a raw fish tartar because it's cured, but it's a gravlax tartare. Interesting. So, which is perfect for the summer because you don't really want to serve a lot of raw ingredients. Yep. On that, have you ever seen those Himalayan salt boards? No. They're pink and looks like a stone. Looks almost looks like a marble. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they're inexpensive and they're a block of Himalayan salt shaped like a charcuterie board. Okay. You could heat it or you could put it in the fridge or freezer. You could do everything. You could actually put it on your barbecue. Okay. And I love serving fish pates and cheeses and stuff, like even like a burrata or something on the Himalayan salt board because it keeps things cold if you keep your Himalayan salt board in the freezer and then you just pull it out. So instead of storing it in your pantry or your, your cupboard, you store it in the freezer so it stays cold. And you could serve grab locks or raw fish or other kinds of fish on the Himalayan salt board. So it infuses a little bit of salt flavor, not too much. And it keeps your fish or shrimp cold. How do you clean it? You just scrub it because you're going to get rid of some of the salt as you're scrubbing it. Yeah.
3: Is it porous? Like, can you use a soap on it?
1: I don't. Think I've ever used a soap on it. Okay. So I just sort of like give it a good scrub with a sponge. Okay. And then a good rinse. But uh, I've never really used a soap on it. But it's incredible. And you could even have like one or two of them. Yep. And they're amazing. I love them. It's a Himalayan board, charcuterie board, you call it.
3: Okay. So one of my first jobs when I was 14 years old is I worked in a gourmet food, a cheese shop. And one, Mm -hmm. one of my jobs was actually to put cheese boards together. So I will give some helpful hints. In terms, if you want to make cheese the focus. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: So
3: nobody likes to cut pieces of cheese themselves. No. So it's up to you and you can do this in advance, cube or create individual portions of your cheese in advance and just make sure if you're using certain cheeses, some of them are, you're going to have to keep cold and other ones are going to be best at room temperature. This holds true even if you're doing something like a soft cheese, like a brie or a brie de mot or a camembert. You can cut a few wedges because it's really frustrating if there's a big board and you're sort of angling to cut pieces of cheese because nobody wants to do it. They don't want to.
1: It's a great tip.
3: And also select things in groups of three or five. Odd numbers are always better than even numbers. Yes, yes. And try and go for different textures. You can stay within, like you can do cheeses of Italy or cheeses of France or whatever, but make sure that you're going for different textures of cheese. And if you go to a good store that specializes in cheese, they can help you with the flavor profile so that not everything sort of tastes the same.
1: Very true. That's actually a great tip because especially if you're standing around over a charcuterie board. Yeah. Nobody wants to angle in and get the cheese. You know, it's hard to stand there and cut it and you're holding a napkin and maybe a drink. You're absolutely right.
3: Cool. Thank you so much yeah. for coming on the show today.
1: You're so welcome, Jamie.
3: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Mike Gaspar, Melissa Cameron, and Carolyn Tanner-Cohen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week.